I think most of the themes that we're going to discuss tonight are themes that most of us are familiar with. Uh, not going to necessarily blow anyone's socks off. Um, but I think it's kind of important to kind of collect all the ideas and put them together because as Jews we know, we don't, we don't, we don't believe in, in JC, we don't believe in Christianity, we don't believe that he was the Jewish Messiah or, or some sort of deity or the Trinity or all that nonsense. Um, but I want to just go through systematically, break it down, what happened, what's the story, what's the history, what's the background, what's the perspective that the Jews have on early Christianity and the development of their religion. Uh, kind of a, a little bit of a historical sense as to what was going on at the time and kind of how this uh, uh, sect that sprouted out of Judaism uh, was kind of a pattern uh, at that time, why it was so, and then going through like the reasons, just what are the qualifications of Messiah, did Jesus fulfill them? Right, what are the accomplishments of Messiah? Did he fulfill them? You know, just just going through systematically and see what we uh, what we find, um, because unsurprisingly, not only he does not fit any of the qualifications, he did none of the achievements that were needed. Um, uh, part two, I was going to talk about the <clears throat> the sources in ancient or an old uh, in classic uh, Jewish literature about about uh, Yeshu may, may or may not be Jesus, because uh, it's very interesting. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, the Talmud says this, the Talmud says that. It's very interesting if you actually examine the Talmud in the sources, many of them that were censored out of the Talmud. But if you actually look at the sources, it's very interesting to see what our sages thought was important to convey about Jesus uh, and how exactly they said what they said. Uh, either way, I want to just point out that for, uh, you know, if I say the, the word uh, Jesus is okay to say, uh, to say the, the, the word that is associated with the sea, right? Mm. Uh, that we don't say because that is, you know, is a, is a, is a name that may or may not be uh, uh, a name of an idol. We don't like talking about idols, um, and uh, we don't want to, you know, we don't we don't just go and praise uh, Jesus. He's not the he's not the Mashiach. Uh, where the term comes from, the word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one, which is the ancient practice that we have in Judaism. You have a king, he gets anointed. You have the coin gadol, they get anointed. They pour special oil on them. He fulfills none of that categories. We don't anoint him. He's not, uh, he's not any Mashiach. So just uh, if you hear me saying JC, that's what I'm referring to. Okay, so what's interesting is that the Jewish response or the Jewish perspective on Christianity is not so heavily emphasized. And interestingly, like we look at the, at, at the period, the historical JC is very hard to find. You know, you look at Christian sources and even Jewish sources. Jewish sources, we don't have any sources in the Mishnah talking about about uh, about JC, we have some of the Talmud talking about Yeshu, um, Yeshu maybe Yeshu Anutsri, which is the Hebrew name that's associated with him. Uh, there is grave doubts as to whether or not that's even referring to the Christian Jesus, uh, because we find actually two narratives in the Talmud, uh, both of them incidentally from the Book of Sanhedrin. Both of them talk about a fellow by the name of Yeshu, and clearly these are not referring to the same guy because one of them lives about 100 years before the Common Era, and one of them lives. One of them, it's 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 it's, it's dubious. It's not clear where, where he's. Uh, it's 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 ambiguous. Uh, then we have another uh, account in the Talmud um, from the Book of Shabbos and the Book of also Sanhedrin, where it talks about a fellow by the name of Ben Stada uh, or Ben Pandira. Uh, which are terms that seems to heavily indicate that this is referring to uh, at least the some version of the guy that we're talking about. Uh, this person uh, exists in the second century of the Common Era. So, uh, you know, from Jewish sources, it's not clear if we're actually talking about the same guy. 
Uh, but even from Christian sources, I get things like Dave. Even from Christian sources, we have no contemporary accounts uh, that the statue even existed. You know, the earliest of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written between 30 and 60 years after the guys purported to have lived. So we have a, um, a big void with regards to uh, documentation as to this person, did he ever live? Now, I'm not, my, my point is, at least for the, for the purposes of our discussion tonight, we're assuming that he did live. We're, we're not going down that path. Uh, but we don't have, it's important to know, it's from the get-go, that his, the historical JC is a little bit hard to, don't pardon the pun, nail down. It's not so easy to find him. Um, uh, and I, I just, I, so, uh, uh, so that's that. Uh, or Dave. No, you said Ben. Did you say Ben? Ben, that? Ben, Ben means the son, son of. of. That's right. So you're saying that they might have mentioned him in the Talmud, son of. Yeah, well, the Talmud, I was planning on leaving this for the next class, which we won't do. So uh, the Talmud talks about a fellow by the name of Ben Stada. Son of Stada. The son of Stada, or who's Stada, right? But uh, who apparently smuggled uh, uh, sorcery out of Egypt with tattoos. And the Talmud says, oh, this guy named Ben Stada, I think his name is Ben Pandira. I was like, you know, or, but, oh, you know, so, so basically there's a whole back and forth. Who is this guy? And the Gemara ultimately says that his, father, his mother's name is Miriam, Miriam Magdala. Okay, that's his mother's name. But she's called Stada because she committed adultery. And her, his father is fellow by the name of Pandira. His mother's husband is a fellow by the name of Papas Ben Yehuda. So all, all that is a long way of saying that if this guy is our guy, uh, then, uh, not our guy, their guy, then he is a bastard son of a fellow by the name of Pandira uh, from the woman named Miriam, who we call Stada because she committed adultery and she was married to another fellow by the name of Papas Ben Yehuda. So it seems likely that uh, this, seems, this seems to have to mirror uh, a little bit of, that, of the story that we're familiar with. Uh, what's interesting, by the way, if you look in the Talmud and you find that, you want to say, oh, let's look Google the Talmud. Where do you find this? You actually won't find this anywhere in the Talmud because these were all censored out. If you look at any edition of the Talmud, not any edition, because some newer editions, they put them back in. But if you find a Talmud over here, uh, you will actually not find it because it was taken out. So in the classical edition of the Vilna Talmud, uh, they actually took it out. They didn't put it in, uh, even though, well, I, I guess it was, it was, um, it was censored uh, by medieval censors. You get to look at this in the Talmud. You'll notice it's very strange. See, it has this big white spot right here at the bottom? Right? Every, every other page doesn't have any white spots. Nothing. They all go to the bottom. Every single page in the Talmud goes to the bottom. They printed it with this deliberate, like, lacking, as if someone touched something out. Of course, someone did take something out. There's a whole narrative. The biggest uh, narrative is on Sanhedrin 43. And the next biggest one that was taken out is also on Sanhedrin. This time it's in 10... Which one is it? Well, the Christians took it out because they thought it was disparaging about their hero. Yeah, the so... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, see, this one also is truncated. This is some other notes on the bottom, but this is... They cut it out. Uh, either way, so a uh, long way of saying that we don't have a lot of contemporary sources. We don't have any, in fact. Uh, the <coughs> Josephus, right? Flavius Josephus, um, who is the great historian of the time. Uh, he, there are two references in there, but everyone agrees. Not only, it's not us saying, every, open up any, doodle it, don't, don't trust me. Uh, but everyone agrees that those things were actually inserted later 
because the Christians uh, had faced a major problem that if this guy was so remarkable and so transformative and uh, so dynamic who lived at the time and the greatest historian of that time who was chronicling what was happening to the Jews makes no mention of him, it might be uh, an opportune, you know, uh, problematic. You, you would want to insert uh, some uh, reference uh, into that book. Uh, but uh, the authenticity of that is, is very much in question. Now, who executed him? Another big hot-button topic. Um, I don't know how much it matters because, uh, in a weird way, the, you know, the whole uh, thrust of the religion is that J.C. died for their sins, which has a little bit of a problem because if I sin today, how does it help that he died for my sins in the past? We'll put that aside. But either way, if J.C. didn't die for their sins, they would have no hope. So ironically, we should, you know, if we did kill him, we should get all the accolades. You know? We should get high fives, yet uh, thousands, countless of Jews were killed because we are Christ killers. You know? we, we, we committed deicide. We killed our God, which is so bizarre if you think about it. What does it even mean? Like, how do we, how do we kill a God? And by the way, if we could kill your God, imagine what we could do to you, right? Um, so, uh, but, you know, most likely the Romans killed him because crucifixion is not a way of execution that we do. We have in the Jewish court of law, there are four methods of execution. None of them are crucifixion. Um, not only that, we know that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, they left the temple site. They were always at the temple site. They left the temple site in the year 30 of the Common Era. 40 years before the temple was destroyed, they leave. They move to a different part of Jerusalem. Now, why would they do that? The reason why is because the rule is that all Jewish courts... Um, wherever the Jews have sovereignty or at least have freedom to administer capital punishment, that is only contingent, or that's contingent upon the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, being in the temple. So essentially, the Sanhedrin forced the hand of all the other courts that they have to stop uh, uh, adjudicating uh, capital punishment because the Sanhedrin left. If so, if this JC was to be executed by the Jewish court of law, they wouldn't be able to do it between the years 30 and the years 70 because the Sanhedrin had left uh, Temple Mount. That being said, I just want to throw out something that I found in the Tosafot, so the medieval commentaries on this same book in the Talmud, on page 37b. It does say that there were instances where the Sanhedrin would move from Chanut, where they moved in Jerusalem, and move back to the Temple, relocate temporarily, in order to enable capital punishment to be meted out when it was necessary. And then Tosfos throws out the very cryptic words, like that particular episode. Which is like, which particular episode are you talking about? So there are those that want to say that they're actually referencing this particular episode. I don't know. The correct answer is I don't know. Uh, but if we did kill him, we didn't kill him with crucifixion. Um, and, uh, and it really shouldn't be that much of a... Uh, uh, of a of, of a discussion it means it's, it, the the point is 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 belabored I think a bit too much. Uh, in 1963, thankfully <laughs> we really needed this, but we were absolved by uh, I think Pope Pius. Uh, uh, I, thought, I thought it was 1968. You and I, Vitae, Pope Paul. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's 63, but we can check that after the class, or someone can check it. No, I'm pretty sure <laughs> just, my memory serves correctly. It's, it's, ni- it's 1963. Whatever. Either way, in the 60s, but check it out. Um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about the history. Them to do that, I think. Yeah, we really needed that. That's right. Um, so, when if we are to learn a little bit about the time period, so let's start a little bit prior. 
um, when the second temple is being built, we're talking about the year 350, <laughs> 350 before the Common Era, uh, we have Ezra coming back from Babylon, and he comes and he re- wants to rebuild the temple. He establishes a, uh, a assembly called the Great Assembly, you know, Men of the Great Assembly. Uh, and they do that, which is an uh, unprecedented assembly, uh, because they're faced with an unprecedented problem. For the first time since Moses, or since the nation was founded... Sorry, that was wrong and cyclical. I'm sorry? Did I get... That was you? wrong and cyclical. Uh, you got it, bro. You got it. Well, whatever. Um, I gave you the wrong one. Um, so for the first time in Jewish history, we're going to have half the nation, in fact, the majority of the nations will be living in Babylon, and the minority of the nation is going to be living in Israel. That's problem number one. We, ha- we how do we how do we you know have a cohesive uh, 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 you know fluid nation where you have people living everywhere, and that obviously is going to uh, that you know that's going to get worse right uh, over time. Number one, number two, there's not going to be any kings. Number three, the Jews are going to live under the dominion of first uh, the Greeks. Uh, then the Ptolemite Greeks and the Assyrian Greeks and then the Hasmoneans are going to provide a, p- a brief period of Jewish sovereignty. And finally, the Romans. It's going to be, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, this, this, this state where the Jews kind of are in Israel but don't have sovereignty. And you're going to have to deal with the new uh, tensions of being subservient to the host empire. Uh, additionally, number four, we have the Jews not having prophecy. Prophecy is going to end towards the end of the first temple. When you don't have prophecy, what happens? Everything, every, uh, uh, every um, heretical idea can take ground. Anyone can say, uh, well, the Torah was made up, or the oral Torah was made up, or uh, the rabbis have no say, or the Sanhedrin is doing things, something which is, uh, you know, which is against Torah. Uh, and you no longer have the opportunity to just go to the go to the prophet, a prophet by the way who's vetted and everyone accepts as a prophet, and have them provide clarity. Even the temple itself is going to be lacking uh, many of the vessels of the first temple. So how do we create uh, a, a religion, so to speak, that's able to uh, you know persevere through all these challenges? Uh, and what they did, they had about 100 years of govern, governing of the people, but much of what we have today in formalized Judaism, like the Tanakh, right? The Tanakh was a product of the men of the Great Assembly. They just determined which books went in, which books went out. Our prayer books, right? That was formalized by the men of the Great Assembly. Uh, er, uh, all you that to try to... Oh, yeah, this, members, this, this, is, this is a Sanhedrin, that's right. By the way, the Knesset in Israel today, comprised of 120 members, is modeled after the Knesset HaGdolo, the great assembly of 120 members of Ezra. Uh, but either way, during this time period, we're going to see a lot of different groups within Judaism. Sectarian groups are going to sprout forth. Uh, we're going to have, uh, in, in the thir- about the uh, 200 to 300 years before the Common Era, the Sadducees, a fellow by the name of Tzadok, it's in Hebrew, it's called the Tzidokim. Tzadok is a student of one of the great rabbis at the time, and he develops, along with his friend Baitus, who became the Baituthans and the Sadducees, the Tzidokim and the Baitusim, and they develop a, a, a theory wherein they reject the premises of the, the tradition within the, uh, the oral law. And once again, we don't have the uh, central authority to 
to respond to them. We don't have a prophet. We don't have, you know, the Jews are scattered. Uh, and eventually those movements uh, become very, very impactful. We have the Hellenists, right? The Hellenized Jews, when Greek and the Greek influence and the Greek culture was very appealing for a lot of Jews, and a lot of Jews want to become these uh, pseudo-Greeks, like these Jewish Greeks. We call them the Hellenists, the Jewish Hellenists. Uh, and we know that the story of Hanukkah was battled over primarily ideological grounds. It was a religious war, much more so than an actual war of a territory or uh, what traditional war has always been about. Right? All that... Uh, all that chaos kind of reaches a crescendo when we have the Romans come. The Romans come in, and the Romans are like a heightened version of the Greeks, uh, and they elect, uh, they, you know, they have their puppet masters uh, in, in, in Rome kind of determining who's going to control what. Uh, and they, you know, they fe- they a fellow named like by the name of like Herod, you know, who wasn't even Jewish, uh, or there's a doubt as to whether or not he's Jewish, and he comes and he starts slaughtering rabbis left, right, and center. Uh, but, but he builds these massive palaces and he rebuilds the temple and we, there's a very conflicted relationship we have with him. But there's you know, heightened tensions everywhere you go. And every, uh, you know, every afternoon there's another group sprouting out, another pseudo-Jewish group. We have a group called the Essenes. We know them because they, uh, um, Josephus talks about them. The Essenes are a group of very, very religious Jews that instead of like, dropping parts of Judaism like the Sadducees did, they actually added to Judaism. And in Judaism, we say, don't add, don't subtract. Because either way you go, you're going to mess up. So they said, oh, we're, we're going to become very, very religious, and we'll have these ritual baths, and we're going to have this, we're going to become celibate, and we're going to add these other apocryphal books. By the way, we found their books because they lived in caves in southern Israel. And they said, oh, the end's near, and they had placards on both sides, and repent thy sinner, right? Yeah. Th- that's the kind of people that they were. These apocalyptic, the world's ending, and we better quickly repent, and there's no need to procreate because the world's coming to an end. And let's live in caves and starve ourselves and be celibate. And what happens to such a nation or such a splinter set, they're gone. Uh, but we have today... Uh, when in 1947, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, according to most historians, these were actually the, uh, uh, the you know, these, these uh, caves were inhabited by, uh, by Essenes, otherwise known as the Dead Sea Sect. Uh, and these Essenes, uh, they had, of course, all the books of the Torah, uh, especially the book of Isaiah. Ah, oh, ends near, right? Um, but they also had their own book, their own apocryphal book, um, uh, books that they had as well. Uh, like, for example, there's a famous book that they had. It's called, like, The Battle of Light Against Dark, you know. It's really this real apocalyptic stuff, and that's an example of a splinter set that kind of went off Judaism, but not with dropping observance, but in fact adding observance. Uh, and, uh, and indeed we find groups that in Jewish literature that we don't find in secular literature. So we have the, the Hellenists, the leftovers, the Sadducees, the Baitusim, like we said, uh, these Essenes, um, and we have, I'm sorry? The Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees are, are a name for, what is the, what are the, the Hebrew name for it is Prushim. Prushim means people for, that withhold. This is what we call the mainstream Jews. The mainstream Jews that withhold from any new innovation are called the Prushim. Okay. You know, they, you know they, they said, let's just, you know, let's just maintain the way it always was. Uh, we would call that the mainstream Jews. And they're, they're the real Jews. Well, not the real, they're all, all, all of them were real Jews at one point, but the Judaism that remained was only the Pharisees. Okay. You know, but that was the same Judaism that emerged. You know, that, that was the same one that came in, right? The, that, those were the ones who said, 
that of all the offices of leadership that we, sh- that we can follow, let's follow the rabbis. Let's follow Sanhedrin. Uh, but we have other groups called the Sicarium. These are like a bunch of mafias, you know, like, like these mafia guys. That they're called Sicari because that was the name of the knife that they used to use to assassinate their opponents. Uh, we have the Biryonim. Biryonim is like a variant of that, uh, you know, which we could say kind of these very, very, very religious, very Zionistic, very nationalistic uh, people. People that weren't willing to negotiate with the Romans and people that were trying to compel us to fight the Romans, even though the Romans were the most powerful empire the world had ever seen, and maybe still to this day the world has ever seen. Uh, so you have so many different groups. Uh, and of course, as we know, when the Jews fight amongst each other, the Almighty says, okay, you guys want to fight and kill each other? I'll bring in the Romans. And they, they, do, they do an excellent job in that. If that's, if that's what you want, you want to fight amongst each other, let's invite the Romans and let's see how they uh, uh, you know, sweep the floor here with you guys. Uh, but at that time, we also meet the Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians is another one of, the, of these splinter sects that emerges from Judaism in the first century of the Common Era. And the script is not unlike any other one. You have a, a charismatic student of a rabbi who is uh, you know, a scholar of, of some repute, uh, who is able to give sermons, is charismatic, you know, and essentially, uh, you know, he's the Messiah or he's a leader. And it, if you were to actually look at a Jew from that time uh, or a Jewish Christian from that time, they would look not unlike the rest of the Jews. You know, they still kept Shabbos and still followed, you know, the laws of uh, kosher and the laws of Nida and the laws of Shabbos and the laws of Tefillin and they had a bris of circumcision, everything. They went to the same schools, the same shuls, the same mikvahs, the same everything. They, same bagel shop, the same Jews. Uh, just they had a fascination with Jesus. You know, besides for that, and Jesus died, oh, they still maintain their fascination with Jesus. Uh, and uh, indeed, if that's the way it would have stayed, mm-hmm. we would never have, her Christianity wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. If Christianity stayed as a group of Jews with a twist, like the Essenes or like the Sadducees or like the Baitusim or like any one of these other groups, they would have been long gone. None of us would ever have even heard of them. Um, the, the, what happened was that there were two major changes that happened. Number one, Paul abrogated the law, right? Uh, whereas Pauline Christianity, not the Jewish Christianity, um, or, uh, uh, but Pauline Christianity, where he comes and says, okay, from now on, Christianity is not about Judaism. There's no Torah, there's no laws, there's no nothing. Maybe the Ten Commandments, maybe love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, but that's all it is. Just believe in Jesus, right? If that's, if, you know, that, that is now, it opens the door to all the Gentiles. And indeed, while it was a very small, um, maybe growing, but it was a small group of Jews that were involved with Christianity, once the split came, it became very popular because it provided the, the non-Jews at the time a uh, you know a very exotic alternative to the paganism that existed at that time. You know, Deo Cassius, the great Roman historian, writes that the Romans had an excess of thirty thousand gods, thirty thousand different gods as official state gods, uh, because the policy was when Rome conquers part of the, more of the empire. What they do is not only do they take the land and they take the taxes and they take everything, they also inherit the deities of the local populace. 
So the more they, the more they conquer, the more gods they have, and they become official gods of the Roman Empire. I, of course, in the fourth century with Constantine, uh, that's going to become obviously the Roman, uh, though it's known as the, the, the Holy Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire, uh, where Rome embraces Christianity. But that's much later down the line. At that time, once Christianity is split off from Judaism, you have Judaism and Christianity, and those two don't meet. Right? That, um, uh, once you have that, it's open to all the non-Jews, and then it really takes off. Jew- they- so I think what you're saying, don't uh, tell me if I'm wrong, is that with it, there was no Jewish authority at the time, no centralized Jewish authority, and there was a manifestation of Paul, which created Christianity. Well, um, I, well the, I wouldn't say there was no centralized um, Jewish authority, because the Sanhedrin... Was, uh, was there at that time? Oh, the Sanhedrin was there. But just, it wasn't it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't <coughs> strong. It wasn't strong Jewishly. It wasn't unquestioned Jewish leadership. It was, there you were know. too many splinter groups. Yeah, there were a lot of different groups. That's right. Yeah, That's too right. many others. Um, and Paul abrogated the law mm-hmm. and opening it for the non-Jews... Uh, and that uh, obviously made it very, po- it was very popular, it was very uh, exotic, if you will, and it took off uh, very much so with the, with, with the non-Jews. Did, okay. did Paul do this after the destruction of the temple? I think so. I don't know the exact timeline. that would have made it simpler. Yeah, yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure it's afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah I, I know yeah. it is afterwards yeah, because, is. because we have, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos that, sh- that, that the, you know, the Shemona Esra prayer, everyone knows the Shemona Esra prayer? What does the word Shemona Esra mean? 18, because it's 18 verses, right? Well, 18 blessings. Uh, but if you actually count them, it's 19. 19. The reason why is because the men of the Great Assembly established 18. And then Shmuel HaKatan, right, one of the scholars, after the temple is destroyed, he says, oh, let's establish a 19th blessing. And that's the blessing of Lamashinim, which is essentially a, a, a curse to the Jewish Christians. Why? Because there were Jews and there were Jewish Christians, and you wouldn't even know if your neighbor, who, by the way, whose son may marry your, own, your daughter, if they're a Jewish Christian, you, how would you know? They were closet Christians. But now what they would do is anyone they suspected to be a Jewish Christian, they would put them up and say, okay, why don't you lead the services? It's like, oh, lead the services. What does that mean? It means to curse yourself out and all your, all your friends, all your colleagues. So he says, eh, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't lead the services. I say, oh, you're sure? You're not going to lead the services? You know what that means, right? It means we can out you as a, yes. uh, as a Christian. Um, so that, but ultimately later on, once Christianity became uh, its own religion entirely, didn't have that problem. And by the way, uh, this is maybe more relevant to what I would have talked about next week, uh, there is a tradition that um, Paul may indeed have been faithful to the Jews till the end. We know Paul started off as Saul, mm-hmm. Saul of Tarsus, and he was initially crusading against uh, the Jewish Christians, but ultimately became the leader. And he was the one who abrogated the law. And then there's another guy by the name of Simon Peter, or Shimon, po- Shimon, uh, Shimon Peter, or Shimon Poter, uh, who was the first pope, and he essentially uh, gave a stamp of approval to Pauline Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that character uh, is the hero of a book called Toldot Yeshu, which is the uh, Jewish, which is a book that outlines, that delineates the Jewish perspective of early Christianity's development. And it talks about one of the rabbis going undercover, right, creating a fifth column, and uh, you know, infiltrating the nascent Christian movement, 
rising to the top and then taking them away from Judaism. So well, the guy who suggested it in the Council of Rabbis said, okay, fine, why don't you do it? I was like, okay. So he, he infiltrates that movement. He rises to the top, becomes Bishop of Jerusalem. He eventually moves to Rome, becomes the first pope, and he is the one who ushers in Pauline Christianity as the official, uh, as the, as, you know, as the official version of Christianity. And that's Peter. That's Peter, that's right. Uh, and by the way, we have prayers in our Jewish prayer books that were authored by this guy. Uh, not only that, we have accounts of letters that he maintained with the rabbis uh, where he wrote letters to them and they have the correspondence back and forth even though he's masquerading uh, as, a, you know, as the leader of, the, of this Christian movement. Very interesting. And by the way, uh, today was the 10th day of Tevet. Uh, in this Toldot Yeshua Hanotsri, this, this book that, uh, that uh, talks about the Jewish perspective of Christianity, uh, so it says that he died on the ninth day of Tevet, and that's why there's a fast on the ninth day of Tevet. And if you look at the Shulchan Aruch, the book, Code of Jewish Law, it says that on the ninth day of Tevet, we have a fast, but we don't know why we fast. Which is bizarre. You know, if you know anything about Jewish law, you know, we don't just say things, oh, let's, not all, let's all fast on this day, but we're not going to tell you why. Mm-hmm. And the real reason why is because Shimon, uh, Shimon uh, Peter he died on that day, and we can't say he died on that day because we can't let people know that he's actually one of us. That's unbelievable. Very interesting. Uh, Either way, go ahead. How does John the Baptist fit into all of this? Well, I want to. I'm saying this is we're trying to give this to Jew, the, the, the Jewish that, perspective. He, he so there's a lot of a lot of characters at the time. He was roaming around at the same time. A lot of people roaming. Of... A lot of people roaming at that time. <laughs> it was a time for roamers. Yeah. Okay, so um. <laughs> now another change that happened another change that happened which also brought Christianity further and further away from Judaism was this whole question as to the identity of JC is he a messiah maybe that's how it started off or is he some sort of deity uh, and there has been contradictions uh, in Christianity ever since that's why so many different little groups of Christianity I have a great quote here uh, through the two millennia of its existence Christianity has waged war upon itself Basically, because it, it never clearly defined itself to the satisfaction of all its would-be adherents. Number one, the concept of the two natures of Yeshu, of J.C. Is he a physical, some sort of you know, messiah or, or healer or soother or sorcerer or whatever? Or some sort of god? Uh, all the problems with the Trinity, right? You know, how do you have three parts of one? Is it three or is it one? Which one is it? Let's, you know, you know, virgin birth. What's the idea of the virgin birth? Isn't that a clever way to avoid the problem maybe... We don't know the dad is. Uh, maybe there's an easier answer, right? <laughs> you know, maybe whenever you have a, a doubt, go with the simplest solution, right? The woman separated from her husband, and suddenly she's pregnant. Maybe there's another guy that we don't know about. Um, uh, who married, the one married, the two marries, the original sin, all the pagan and, and uh, pagan rituals and symbols in Christianity, as we know, December 25th. Uh, is indeed borrowed from uh, a Christian, uh, from from ancient uh, pagan religions. All these problems, indeed, um, were um, uh, you know uh, have always plagued Christianity. And indeed, we have the famous Council of Nicaea in the year three twenty five, where essentially a group of bishops get together to determine what we believe, which is bizarre. Imagine three three hundred years after the founding of the religion, you say, okay, well, we have a religion; it's very powerful, but what do we actually believe? Uh, and indeed, that's when they uh, determined which books are in the final canon and which ones are not. 
and thus they opted for the ones that present JC as more of a divine um, quality, uh, and the other ones that got rid of and banned and burned, which is interesting, right? If you're trying to actually present an honest, legitimate perspective, you don't you ban and burn the books that you disagree with. Um, but not only that, like the the identity of of Jesus is the most important entity, most important line item in the religion, and that had to be determined by vote of a bunch of bishops 300 years after these events even happened, which is ridiculous. Um, but uh, this lack of uniformity actually didn't disturb uh, the Christians from, you know, from pursuing their interests. Uh, oftentimes those interests involve killing Jews. Uh, the fact that it's not logical what they're, what, what they're trying to sell or it's not uniform or there's major problems with what they're trying to propose, that never stopped them from, from killing Jews or from you know, doing whatever they can to maintain their power. Uh, you know, like we said, the Jews are persecuted for killing a god. Think of how insane that sounds. Mm-hmm. Us, we're persecuted today and people hate us today. Uh, because we killed their God, which, first of all, I didn't kill anyone, right? What does that even mean? Uh, the whole thing is ludicrous, uh, but that hasn't stopped them, uh, right? Um, it's just another excuse. But exactly. But uh, our perspective has always been for, for this, these past 2,000 years is that we categorically, unquestionably reject Christianity and JC and all that nonsense. We think it's nonsense. We're not worried that he's going to come back. Like, you know, the people say that, oh, the evangelicals only support Israel because they believe that once the Jews are in Israel, then JC will come back. Support us. Let's get to Israel and let's wait and see what happens, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Let's put, uh, do you five, you know, five to one that ain't coming back. Yeah, good luck with that, exactly. Um, but either way, we have rejected it because not only is their story not one uh, that has any credibility to it, uh, not only that, we actually believe that we contributed to the story itself, like we manipulated it, um, uh, number one. But number two, like, first of all, what are they even selling? Like, we'll, we'll have to address it one by one. But was J.C. the Jewish Messiah? Clearly not. Well, how do we know that? Uh, well, what's the, Jason, well, what's, the, well, what's, the, what's the what's the most important role of the Messiah? Has to be with the Davidic line, right? Well, that's true. So that, 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 that's the character profile is uh, of the Davidic line. But what's, what are the most important responsibilities? Well, they have to usher in the Messianic era. Well, what does the Messianic era look like? So we find um, that there's no famine, there's no war. There's no envy or hump for competition, and no other pursuit in the world will take anyone's interest other than pursuing God. Has the past 2,000 years looked like a bloodless one? <laughs> Has there been you know, no envy or uh, uh, no competition? Uh, and do people have any other interests aside from God? The big question is if people are even interested in God, right? But we find <coughs> the history post-Jesus to not at all be... Uh, uh, in line with the messianic, uh, with the messianic prophecies, that's number one. Uh, number two, what are the qualifications of the Messiah? So we have uh, number one. My mind tells us he has to be king from the house of David. We know uh, it's been widely uh, accepted and established that to be a king of the Jewish people, you have to come from the house of David. Now, what does that mean? It means your dad has to come from the house of David, and your granddad, and your great granddad, and your great 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 granddad. Well, what if you don't have a dad? <coughs> Right? Or what if in the book of Luke, chapter 3, and the book of Matthew, chapter 1, it gives us two different paternal grandfathers? 
Which one are we following to get back to David? Your own books, right? The canon of the Christians in two places give us different paths to get to King David. Which one is it? But also, if we're dealing with the virgin birth, we can't get to King David. Um, studies Torah and performs mitzvahs like David's ancestors. We find uh, that uh, J.C. was actually not someone who upheld uh, the tradition of the, his ancestor, uh, David. Uh, it is in the book of John, chapter 9, it talks about that he didn't even obey the Shabbos. You don't obey the Shabbos, he wasn't, he wasn't, even, he wasn't even observant, or at least not totally observant. Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Either way, you know, the, 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 there's millions of people that come from David, right? That doesn't prove anything. Um, but we don't know for sure that he did come from David. Uh, but even if he did, it wouldn't mean anything because he's not actually someone whose personality, whose behavior, whose activity uh, is in line with that of, of, of Messiah. He's going to compel the Jews to Torah. He brings the Jews away from Torah. He's going to fight the wars of Hashem. He did the exact opposite. None of the four personal qualifications of Messiah um, that uh, that are brought down, did J.C. fulfill? Not only that, what about his accomplishments? Let's look at the accomplishments the Messiah needs to do, and let's ask ourselves one by one. Did J.C. do it? No. The answer is by all seven of them. Number one, did he rebuild a temple? No. No. Number two, did he gather the Jews from all far-flung corners of the earth? No. Number three, did he reestablish Jewish law over Israel? Number four, did he reinstitute sacrifices in the temple? No. Number five, did he fix the entire world to worship God? No. Number six, did he reestablish the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin? No. Number seven, did he restart the Jewish calendar laws, such as the Shemitah and the Yovah? No. What are, what are these seven laws or rules? Well, Maimonides collects them, um, um, so he organized it in a nice, clear fashion, um, but none of them were fulfilled. None of them. And by, out of the other, other ones that we mentioned are, are verses, verses throughout, uh, throughout the Tanakh. Um, so none of them. Why should we ever consider that JC is our guy? Why? It seems so bizarre. Why? We never did and we never will because he fulfills none of the qualifications. Uh, none of the qualifications that we perceive. Well, we're, we're the Jews, I'm saying. That's true. That's true. And, but they're working with the same documents, right? Uh, they are trying to prove from the Torah that he's the right guy, but he isn't because we're using the Torah and we're saying that he's not the right guy. They go to the, the New Testament. Though. Well, right, right, but the New Testament, you know, that comes afterwards. Right, well, I get it, but that's who, that's where they get their authority from. The okay, well, you can make up a, a, a even newer I'm not testament. Saying I'm saying they're wrong. I agree with you, but that's where. They well, get no, 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 no. They're just no. They, they, their only justification can be uh, can be from the Old Testament. Because otherwise, you, you can't make, you can't change the rules to say that you are you know you're the guy, right? Because the rules are uh, you know predate him. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried, of course, but but they can't do it. Um, well, so they if we actually, to him being a Jew, so obviously. Oh yeah, oh yeah, exactly. And and, and, and we also have to realize that. that this this whole thing is entirely different <laughs> than the way it was uh, when he was actually alive. Not only that, we have so many verses that it's it's even ludicrous even to even talk about this. But the idea of a man uh, being some sort of uh, representation of God is so insane. It's so ludicrous 
um, from our perspective. We have lots of verses. We talk about Shema Yisrael that God, you know, God is is not capable of having any sort of interface with us. We, you know, we talked about this in previous classes uh, in this very same room that it's not possible for us to have any interaction with God in our physical realm because God's not physical. It's not possible for Him to be physical. There's no form. There's no body. Right? Exactly. You know, we've 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 said that. But there's even verses like the verse in Numbers 23: God is not man that He should be deceitful, nor son of man that He shall relent. Right? We can't work with God the same way we work with man. We say uh, the Shema, the Shem Echad, not one, not two, not three. You know, you know, not multiple parts, only one. We say that that's you know that's in our mezuzahs, that's in our tefillin. We say that every day, morning and night. Um, there's no God but me, Deuteronomy chapter 32. But I'm just picking, but there's a lot of sources, and this has been so widely accepted. And by the way, even Jesus himself accepted it, right? It's just nonsense that was made up afterwards. Um, and, um, it, you know, I'll uh, just mention, like, for us, <coughs> we view Christianity as idolatry. It's idolatry in a, in a way that's not similar to Islam. Islam is not idolatry. The God of Islam is the same God that we have. Right? One will be allowed to walk into a, a mosque, but not into a church, because walking into a church is a house of idolatry. Again, look at the house of idolatry. Right? We have to give up our lives and not transgress idolatry. It means we have to give up our lives and not embrace Christianity. Right? That's one of the cardinal sins, idolatry. Christianity would fall into that category. Um, so, so, Rabbi, we're not allowed to walk into a church? Yeah, well, you, are you allowed to walk into a house of idolatry? No. no. So, you know, so you can't so walk we into know somebody who has, who's having a wedding or something, we're not just not Sorry, allowed to Sorry, not coming. Okay. That's right. Okay. That's right. Um, but not only that, we have to ask ourselves the most important question. On what basis are we accepting, or are they accepting, the, uh, you know, the fact that J.C. is special in any way? Like, what do we, we have no historical or contemporary... Uh, documentation, right? We have the books that were crafted by 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 people with a very uh, you know very sharp agenda hundreds of years yeah. later, and let's even assume that the guy did miracles. Let's assume that he did miracles. Let's assume that. Let's assume that that's true. It doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove anything. I'll tell. You, well, why not? Why don't miracles prove something? Even to be a prophet, miracles don't prove anything. Right? We have loads and loads of... You read, read the Tanakh. How many, miracles, how many miracles do you find? Right? Elisha uh, reviving the dead. Does anyone say that Elisha is Messiah or Elisha is God? No. Elijah doing his miracles. Right? All the, uh, all the prophets, but even later on, we find the Tanaim. The Tanaim, the first, uh, the, the first second uh, 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 century rabbis before and after the Common Era, doing loads and loads of miracles. Does anyone for a second say, we have Tanayim splitting the sea, reviving dead, uh, uh, going into the higher realms, the paradise like Rabbi Akiva did, uh, uh, Rabbi Yezer was able to somehow, uh, you know, take a whole field and, and have, it all, have all the produce just come, come, come together as one. No one for a second ever claimed that because someone does miracles or what we perceive to be miracles, it proves anything. Right? Moses splits the sea, right? That we have testimony of, 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 of millions of people. Did anyone say that Moses is divine? No. Did anyone say Moses is Messiah? No. Maybe he could have been. But we never we don't consider things that are illogical, that a man is God, no matter how miraculous that man can be. If someone does a miracle today, you know, we have testimonies 
of hundreds of people that saw a fellow by the name of the uh, uh, the uh, the Baba Sali, who's a great rabbi, lived in Israel, died in 1984. He did miracles, and I I, I speak to hundred people that they saw it. They didn't rely on dead people, not not that I know of, but he used to take a bottle of of wine and wrap it around with a handkerchief, a bottle like this, and pour for 50 people cups of wine. I don't know he did it. I don't know maybe. I don't know. I know. All I know is that I spoke to someone who said I was there and I was like looking at this, at the bottle, clearly, because everyone knew this, this, this shtick that he would do and he did it. Uh, is it a miracle? Maybe yes, maybe no. Who knows? But even if it was a miracle, so does that prove anything? This is the 1980s. This is contemporary times. What does that prove? The fact that we can digest is a miracle. The fact that it's common makes us not real, not, not think not much of it. But you tell me, the fact that you're able to ingest food and you're able to separate the vitamins and minerals and all the things that you need from things that you don't need and just get rid of the waste, that's not a miracle? That's not miraculous? It just happens to be that a lot of people are able to do it, so we don't think that much of it. The fact that your heart pumps 89,000 times a day without you thinking about it, being totally unconscious about it, is that not a miracle? Of course it's a miracle. Just thankfully, we're used to it. It doesn't need to be recharged. The batteries don't need to be recharged for 90, 100 years. Unless it does, right? Unless you need a pacemaker or whatever. Right, but that's not, why does that, that's also miraculous. Miracles are everywhere that you want to find them. But that, the miracle proves nothing. And even if the miracle is outside of the realm of the normal ways of, uh, of, of nature, it doesn't prove a thing. We have countless accounts from very reliable sources, much more reliable, with contemporary people that actually saw these things happen, miracles, and no one would ever suggest that the people that performed these miracles were anything but regular, standard, ordinary humans. Well, maybe extraordinary humans, but still humans nonetheless. So we have literally nothing that we should believe. I'm sorry? It was supposed to be videotaping? It was going to turn off uh, after a while, so. I got a question for you, but I don't want to. Go ahead. You want it on videotape? (laughs) No. You went off, okay. Um, so we have no, we have, the biggest question we have to ask ourselves, okay, give me some evidence that this guy JC is anything other than a regular dude who may have been charismatic, may have been a little bit more scholarly, may have had his hand in sorcery, which is the way I think he's able to do those miracles, if he did them. What, what, what is there? There's nothing. What about us? Look at, look, look at Judaism. What's the founding of our religion? Some guy told a guy or whatever, you know, some guy met some, uh, ha, you know, had some moment on the way to Damascus, and he's like, oh, you know, is that what it is? No. It's millions of people at the foot, foot, at, at the, at the, at the uh, foot of the mountain, right, having prophecy together as one, national prophecy, right? Dramatic miracles that are, are, are ever present, not just one time, you know, turned water into, into, into wine. We're talking about years, 40 years of what are you eating for 40 years? Mm-hmm. Manna from heaven. H- how many people are we fitting with? H- how, 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 you know, how do we do this long con? Millions of people, manna from heaven, 40 years. It's not like, let's do a miracle, you know, I got you know, do some shtick that I, you know. We're talking about a miracle that fed a nation. For 40 years, a nation of millions for 40 years. What do you drink in the desert for 40 years? Water from a rock. Show me some of that kind of miracle and we'll get, your, get my attention. Go ahead. Did Moses uh, create miracles too? Did he do before miracles? Yes. Okay. When he was in front of Pharaoh, the Pharaoh's people created miracles. 
That's right. Okay, okay, okay. There's a great misconception. But Maimonides goes out of his way to answer your question. He says, okay, why do we believe Moses? Moses so, never claimed to be Yeshua or, I mean, Jesus or whatever. Moses never claimed to be no. what? Jesus. He never said he was the Messiah. God. Or Messiah. Never of course not. God. Yeah. He never did. Even though he created miracles. And so what? He took all the Jewish people out of the... So what? Well, there's another God. Well, he he right, of course. I'm saying every miracle comes around. Every every non miracle comes around as well. There's another opinion is I have a son. I'm his father. Go ahead. Okay, so he carries my last name. Go ahead. Adam was created by who? God. God. So his father is God. So the human race. Father. Well, you don't have God. to go to Adam. You so, go to the, our prayer books. Our yeah, prayer books, we say, Avinu Malkeinu. The there's, there's a verse in the Torah. Banim atem Hashem lokeichem. You are sons to Hashem, your God. You don't have to go to Adam. We're all children of God. That's right. So what? It doesn't mean that we're divine in any way. We're, so we're ordinary so physical humans. Claim of Jesus being a, a son of God, what he claimed, Correct, yeah, but yeah, but okay, okay, but okay, but that's but that's not that's that, that's not how it was intended. It's no, intended. It was it was intended that he's something special and something better than something different than the rest of us. Of course, all of us. We say Avinu Malkeinu. I brought you a verse uh, in Deuteronomy. It says something like that. But you are sons, Hashem, your God. But I, but I want to go back to your original point. Moshe, right? Moshe does miracle. Go ahead. So the issue that I'm seeing in this whole picture is not the claim, but the people making him a God, a separate God. Well, it's it's not so clear what they're trying to make him. Religion with their own God. If you go to Christians, most of them don't even realize that he's Jewish. Okay. In reality. Yeah. So well, what's your point? So my point is. The claim itself is it has some legitimacy to it and not because the whole agenda behind it and the conflict be- between is created by pagans and their worship. But, but, but there's no legitimacy of ever giving to human God qualities or God human no, qualities. There's no crossover. Go ahead. Sons of God. We are all Okay, so there's something special about each and every one of us. I would agree. And I will say, we've talked about this, that we have a neshama, a soul, and the soul gives us God-like qualities. But you don't even have to go to that. We talked about uh, Adam. You mentioned Adam. Adam is created in the image of God. There is some sort of corollary between us and God, right? We are the only two entities that are capable of free will. Only God and humans can make free will. Angels can't do free will. Animals can't do free will. We can do free will. God can do free will. But that's him saying, yeah, you're right that there is some sort of similarity between man and God, but first of all, that's uniform across all humanity, number one. But number two, it's not, it doesn't in any way uh, amount to us being, or us being capable of being divine in any way. All of, uh, or having any, any, any power onto our own. Not as what God gives us. But your point that you brought about with Moses, a very, very, very strong point. Moses did miracles. Why did Jews believe him? So Moses comes and says, okay, um, Pharaoh, you don't let the Jews leave. I'm going to turn all the water into blood. Okay. He does it, turns the water into blood. Pharaoh is impressed, but then he shows his sorcerers do the same thing. Even though they didn't really turn the blood, they just color the, they just put the, uh, they put the uh, food coloring in it. Fine. 
pretty remarkable. Moshe's accurate. He's able to withdraw it whenever he wants. Fantastic. Same thing with the frauds. Third time, right, with the kinim, with the lice, the sorcerers of, of Pharaoh say, whoa, this is the finger of God, right? This is, this is something special. We can't do that, mm-hmm. right? Moses does a series of miracles, right? Ten miracles, split the sea, mir- wonderful miracles. Why do the Jews believe Moses? Why do they believe? Moses comes and says, I'm going to give you Torah. Correct? I'm going to give you Torah. Well, do they believe him because of the miracles or not? How well do y'all know your scripture, guys? Two well, things. Uh, first of all, they were waiting uh, or praying to God for 400 years to be taken away from slavery and so on. Okay, but why? But the question is why they believe Moshe. Because the Torah tells us why they believe Moshe. Did you know that? Because not all of us will believe it um, at first anyways. And we're looking at 40 years in, uh, I mean, in the desert, they were constantly challenging him. Yes, they were challenging him. That's true. Let me find it here. Yeah, but the funny thing is, this is the partial you guys are doing right now. Here we go. So this is chapter nineteen, uh, verse nine. Uh, this is right at the on the they're on the doorstep of Mount Sinai. They're about to get the Torah at Mount Sinai. Uh, and this is obviously after they have already left Egypt. They've been traveling for 50 days. They've been eating manna for a while already. Moses, obviously, is very high profile already. Hashem said to Moses, Behold, I, I come to you in the thickness of the cloud so that the people will hear as I speak to you, and they will also believe in you forever. We just did this tonight. There you go. So you guys didn't remember what we learned an hour ago, right? <laughs> Just lasting. Yeah. Yeah. Do you right. want to keep coming back? <laughs> right, so what do we see? We see that the reason why the Jews believe, this is what it says. Why would the Jews believe in Moshe forever? Because of Mount Sinai. Because miracles, we don't know how miracles happen. It's possible that there's some sort of shtick like the uh, Egyptians did, or there's some sort of black magic of some sort. Miracles don't prove anything lasting. The reason why we believe in Moshe forever is because of prophecy. Prophecy is a different, it's not just a fancier miracle. It's a different realm of experience. When you have prophecy and you see that God speaks to Moshe, right, and you're able to participate in that prophecy, they never doubt Moshe. And that's why Moshe is the one who gives the Torah. And that's why we believe in him till this day that the Torah we have today is the Torah that he got from God because we know that he's a verified prophet because we were there to experience his prophecy alongside of him. So to, back to my point, even if someone d- does miracles, proves nothing. Even Moshe's miracles doesn't prove that he's, uh, that he's a prophet. Go ahead. What is your name? Leonard. Leonard. You made a comment that most Christians don't even know that Jesus was Jewish. I would say 98% of them take belief in the, believe in the, in the Old Testament, though. They do. So they, that, they know that he was, that he was Jewish. You confront them and ask them a question straightforward. Do you know that uh, Jesus is a Jew? And they're like, what? Well, I don't think really? that's true. It's my experience. I'm not saying... No, okay, but I think no, that I would say 98% of the people that grew up as Christians knew Jesus was a Jew. Well, either way, either way, either way, um, uh, there is a lot more that we can talk about. I have a whole other class now about all the sources in the Talmud. Um, unfortunately, we, we, we're out of time. Um, but either way... I would advise everyone, if you're interested in that, uh, find your way to my website. I have a whole class in it. Uh, I'll I'll send the link out tonight uh, or tomorrow, whatever. 
Um, but either way, it's not so simple what the Talmud says. A lot of people say, you know, they say, oh, the Talmud says this about that. We did this to Moses, we did to JC, we did that to JC. It's not clear that we've been talking about the same JC. There's different time periods. There's, there's a lot of nuance in that discussion. Either way, I think what we achieved today is clarity as to, A, the origins of, of Christianity and how it kind of fits in with the historical trend that was existing at that time was a much bigger trend, how it kind of spiraled and, and you know, uh, became its, you know, was spun off to being its own religion, and the basic tenets of Christianity that we reject, why we reject it, because they actually don't fulfill any of the requirements uh, and none of the prophecies of the Messianic era, of Jesus being the Messiah, of his qualifications personally, or his achievements, accomplishments that he is, uh, Messiah is destined to fulfill. He fulfilled none of them. Of course, the uh, notion of a man being to God is, insati- is actually insane. By the way, I'll tell you one cool, one cool thing before we go here. Uh, back in that, uh, that book that we have, Told of the Issue, about the, the Jewish perspective on the, uh, on, the, on the early Christianity, it talks about this guy, Shimon Peter, right, that he actually uh, wrote many of the books of the, of the early Christians. Uh, not only that, it says that he actually determined that the uh, book that the books will all be written in Latin, and that the language of the of the church will be Latin. Not only that, he gave names for the uh, he gave names for the Latin letters, Latin alphabet we have today, A B C D E F G, right? He gave names for all those letters, and we find I think it's like a tenth or eleventh century Jewish commentator that points out that if you actually look at the at the at the A B Cs that we have, and you take the first ten and the last ten, and look at the middle three, you'll find that the middle three letters are. Drum roll, please. One of the middle three letters of the, of the alphabet. L-M-N. L-M-N. In Hebrew. Who knows Hebrew here? L? No, no, no. What does the word L mean in Hebrew? One. God. Aim. Mother. Aim is a mother. Ain. What does Ain mean? It means none. God has no mother. So essentially, like, he threw in these little, another pun there, a little Easter edge, so to speak, into the language saying this whole thing's nonsense. God has no mother. It's not possible for God to have a mother, right? You can't have, uh, you know, anything existing, you know, God being dependent upon anything. How cool is that? Either way, guys, very interesting. Um, but we have a little bit of a picture. Unfortunately, we can't do this uh, other one. But look forward to seeing you guys next time. All the best. Are you going on one? Uh, yeah,